This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to to non-hunters that it's it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it, Brittany? My name. My name. Is, <laughs> Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, <laughs> you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Justin Lee is Big Isle Boy 24 on Instagram. He's a native Hawaiian from the Big Island. And I wanted to have him on because the Hawaiians just have a different way about them have a different way about the ethic and the ethos of the land, of the, of the animals. And all the animals are essentially invasive. Feral, pigs, goats, sheep, cattle. But, but the Hawaiians, I've heard Makua Rotham told me that they are the best hunters from the mountains to the sea. And that's essentially who they are. They just live and breathe this life that is connected to the land. So enjoy. So I met a, a fellow, a, I met a fellow Hawaiian the last Did three you? days. Mm-hmm. He's a legit legend in my world. And uh, have you heard of a guy called Danny Bolton? Of course. Of course, of course. Sweetie and I live on the same island. <laughs> of, of course. It's like, you, but you live on the same island. The island's huge. You can't know everyone on the island, Justin. Come on now. Well, if they hunt, 
they spearfish and they collect dinner off the ocean or in the land, I guarantee I've met them. You know, so big let's, island. Let's small talk circles. a little bit about that. Collecting, collecting, collecting dinner off the land, out of the ocean, regardless of weapon. It just seems like a constant message that's coming out of the big island. Like here, uh, Makua Rotham told me, you guys are the best hunters from the mountain to the sea. I think I think there's some truth to that, um, just in the fact that we get to do it 365. You know, the amount of, uh, I've got one of my best friends, um, this guy named Wayne Cipriano, in one year killed 296 pigs. And that's, that's with a full-time job. And that's, you know, he, he makes sausages and everything like that. And him and his dad are kind of world-renowned or island-renowned or state-renowned um, for his different sausages and stuff. And so going out and collecting, you know, that many pigs is just part of life, you know. And so, I mean, tell me another state other than, I mean, in the U.S. I mean, Australia, you can hunt that often, um, you know, in a couple of other different countries. But there really is no place in America that you can hunt 365 days out of the year. I mean, at the end of the day, if, uh, if my kill count isn't right, the geckos on the wall are in trouble, you know? So it's, uh, it's just part of life out here. You know, you're, you're always out there trying to collect, um, the next meal or the next, uh, party favors or the next, um, you know, or helping out, you know, grandma or grandpa down the road, um, with a lobster dinner or a fish dinner, you know? And so when it comes to spot and stock hunting or dog hunting or, rifle hunting or what it is is just because we have so many options um you know you get 50 years worth of spot and stocks um in a few weeks out here than you would anywhere else in the u.s mm, mm. justin lee welcome to the blood origins <laughs> podcast my man aloha, aloha. Uh, stoked to be here super super stoked uh introduce yourself to those that may not be familiar with the big isle boy <laughs> It's funny because most people think it's Biggles Boy. So thank you very much for saying it correctly. <laughs> oh, I should, damn it, I should have said Biggles Boy. <laughs> yes, it's Big Isle Boy 24. Uh, the 24 just comes from my favorite number in high school. That's what I was in baseball and, and volleyball and everything like that. Um, but uh, very, very proud of who I am and where I come from. And uh, a bigger part of who I am is where I come from. And that's the Big Island out here in Hawaii. Um, do a lot of spearfishing, do a lot of archery hunting. Um, and, uh, just stoked to try and pass on what, uh, what I've learned from, uh, my dad and my uncles and everything or everybody around me, um, to my next generation. Uh, I got a two and a four year old and, uh, they will, uh, Both boys? uh, no, I got a little girl. I got a little princess that's four. Um, and it's crazy. I've learned every princess dress there is out there because when she wakes up in the morning, if she puts on Aurora's dress, if she puts on Cinderella's dress or, Raya's dress or whatever princess it is for the day, she refers to herself as that. And so it's taken me a minute, but I, I kind of got Have all you the, done the whole Disney World thing yet? We haven't yet. You know, with um, the world being shut down and everything like that in California, uh, being especially with the, the COVID um, mandates and such, uh, it just, you know, if I'm going to go to California and go to Disneyland, I want to make sure it's it's the time where we can go and explore everything. 
my daughter's now seen a million uh, uh, tutorials on the Bippity Boppity Boutique, which is where uh, they take a, a princess uh, of their choosing, sit them down, dress them up, put makeup on them, and make them into a little princess. And uh, they hang out with them for the day. 100%. So we want to make sure that that's available when we get up there. Um, but, you know, in the same sure. breath that she loves being dressed up as a princess, she's an awesome little hunter already. She's quiet when she needs to be quiet. And she enjoys it. Um, and then my son, that's two, his name is uh, Pa'akai. And Pa'a, the first part of his word is solid. And the last part of his word is kai, which is ocean water. So he's the solid form of ocean water or salt. And uh, his middle name is Ragnar. His name is Pa'akai Wade Ragnar Lee. And he is all that is Viking. Jeez. It's crazy. He uh, He's that just is awesome. big, swollen push his daughter around little boy i mean his sister around little boy and uh it's awesome i can't wait to to get them a little older enough that they can really really come on adventures with daddy no that's awesome dude that's awesome uh, going back to your guy that killed 200 and what'd you say 69 pigs 96 296 in one okay. year so 296 a lot of people will hear that and they're like man what a waste uh-huh what a, this guy's just all about killing. But the Hawaiian culture, it, it, it's almost the killing is like, I was, I was again, fortunate to be around Danny, uh, Danny Bolton this past mm -hmm. weekend, but I was also uh, fortunate to be around and had a really good conversation with Neil Kamimura. Oh, okay. And he was talking about that the kill is almost just this thing that has to happen. Yeah. Right. It, it, it's like it, you don't even think about it because of the traditions and the risk. He talked about the respect of the animal. Mm -hmm. And I can guarantee those 296 animals were probably better respected than most animals, you know, on, on the on the state side mainland. Right. Oh, for sure. And, you know, his dad um, being a butcher, uh, you know, from a young age, taught him how to properly take down a um an animal and i mean we just did a uh, a photo shoot he and i um about living off the land and uh when we were little we used to just take spices and go hang out on the cliff sides and and bring a bow or a gun um and a couple of fishing poles and just bring spices and live off the land and catch fish and everything like that and he caught a pig his skinning ability on a pig is redonkulous like there isn't any fat left on the skin um there isn't any meat um, the ribs are taken, the legs and everything like that. It is it is all very well used. And because he makes sausages with it, you know, he takes so much of the meat off of it because it just gets ground up together, you know. And, um, you know, there's uh, weddings and stuff that uh, we'll call him for his, his sausages. And, you know, we'll make four or 500 pounds of sausage, you know. So to think that the meat that uh, someone from you know, of that is collecting that much is because there's that much need, you know, out here. And uh, the beautiful mm -hmm. thing out here in Hawaii is that mm -hmm. our pigs are eating guavas, are eating macadamia nuts, are eating avocados, are eating just a plethora of really, really good foods, which makes the pork even that much more flavorful and that much healthier, you know, mm -hmm. um, you know, because these weddings and stuff like they could go and go to Costco and they could buy their pineapple sausage or they could buy their andouille sausage or they could buy anything else. 
you know, but the preference is there to catch something off the land that hands have put love into it and uh, put respect into the game, you know, and we live on an island where, you know, an animal like a pig, as destructive as it is, needs to be managed, you know, and you can't just let them go mm-hmm. or else it'll be like Texas where they fly around with helicopters and just eradicate them off of the ground. You know, Hawaii, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we used to have a crazy sheep problem. Uh, we've got feral sheep out here in Hawaii that are a blast to hunt, um, you know, and uh, out of all the islands, it's the only place that has feral sheep. Well, since their introduction and onto Mauna Kea without any natural predators, they exploded. I mean, like ridiculously exploded. And, um, you know, there was, I think, like 30 or 40,000 on Mauna Kea, which is too much. And they used to put a bag limit on the amount of sheep that the hunters could take. Well, they found out that there was a uh, an endangered bird called the palila bird up there. And they fed on a particular seed um, on the mamani tree. And the sheep used to eat the mamani trees. You know, so the balance was kind of off their own because there was too much sheep. There wasn't enough. Um, the plants weren't able to grow, so the seeds. So they were thinking that they were negatively impacting the, the palila bird's population. You know, so they got a federal mandate out there and they started eradicating the sheep up there flying with helicopters, and they still, to this day, go up there and eradicate sheep up there. But the Palila bird number has never increased. You know, what has increased is the fire load, you know, without the sheep Mm. taking care of the invasive grasses. Um, You know, with only pointing the figure at um, the sheep and the ungulates, the wild feral cats that are up there have a free goal. You know, so... It's, they just took the easy way out, it seems like, since the 70s. And, um, you know, it, if I think if you would have let the, the hunting population get out there, the hunting uh, personnel get out there and collect, like Wayne does, 296. Well, what if he collected 150 sheep that year and made smoke sheep for friends that were getting married? You know, then the numbers uh, possibly could be kept in check at a level where the environmental is in balance with the hunters. No, hundred percent, man. It's um, you know, management is key to to so many different balances in the ecosystem, right? And so, mm-hmm. and Hawaii is almost like the poster child for it because pretty much everything is feral, right? Yeah. Everything, everything is invasive. Everything, everything that got here had to either fly here or swim here. You know, there's no there's no sheep flying swimming across the across the, the ocean to get here. You know, so there's so only a couple of mammals. Culture. Yeah, no, there's only a couple of mammals that are native, right? Mm-hmm. The, the bat and the monk seal. You know, everything else that you mm-hmm. see around here is, is uh, has all been brought in, whether it was by the first Hawaiians or by the settlers and the missionaries and all the way up to today. So your culture is intrinsically tied to invasive species and managing them and utilizing them and making sure that the land is taken care of, right? Exactly. 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 You know, I think the Hawaiians realized pretty quickly, we are on a big island that we've established that that we live on out here. However, if you, you know, if you screw up and you've raked this portion of the land, eventually you're going to work your way around. And if you didn't do it in a sustainable way, your, your whole society is going to collapse. You know, and the Hawaiians, um, they had a, a division, a division kind of called Ahupua, 
which is like a, a chief was ruler of a section of the island that they could live sustainably on that island uh, or on that section of the island. And, um, you know, it's proof that if you put sustainability first, humans can thrive. You know, when Captain Cook mm -hmm. first showed up to Hawaii, there was something three quarters of a million Hawaiians here that were here. Now we've got over just over a million residents. So we almost have the same amount of people. A lot more visitors now, of course, than the, than the Hawaiians had to deal with. Right, right, right. But now 99% of our food gets brought in. You know, it's where does that balance come back to? You know, how do we get back to how mm -hmm. these islands used to be able to support three quarters of a million people sustainably off of what was here on the islands? And now it's flipped completely away the other way. And we have to truck in everything or boat in everything. So what, what caused that change, though, Justin? It sounds like you've got a plethora of animals on the landscape that could sustain people. We, I mean, you've got feral chickens, man. <laughs> yeah, if you've been to Kauai, you've got a million feral chickens. Um, you know, we've got feral chickens, and that's just one of the birds that we have. We've got turkeys and chuckers and quails, um, peacocks. You know, we've got all of this food running around. And if you ever drive to the Big Island and you drive up the Kohala coast, just past the airport, even at the airport, there is thousands of goats on the side of the road. You know, there's so much protein walking around, you know, and everybody and their grandma. I mean, Hona, I mean, Hawaii is a greenhouse. You know, in my backyard, I think I've got like 30 different edible plants from pineapples to avocado and mango trees to tangerine trees all the way down to basil cilantro green mm. onion you know it's all doable but it's all that part of how do we do it you know and i think the biggest shift came from all of a sudden the cost of land in hawaii is so expensive that to raise agriculture itself you just can't afford to anymore mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. um whether it's raising cattle or pork or chickens all the way up to raising um produce the cost of land has just gotten so expensive that it's hard to um, sustain yourself financially on that. And mm. uh, I think that's why we've lost so much of our uh, farmers moving back to the mainland. Yeah, that makes complete sense. It makes complete sense. You know, one of the things that really hit home again when I was talking to Neil was like the the utter respect that you have for the animal, and he was talking about the um, and again, I, I, I he obviously told me the Hawaiian name, but I can't remember it now. But the the process of putting the pig in the ground and heating the lava rocks and going to get the rocks that were the most dense from the lowest part of the mountain and bringing them in, and then cooling three or four of those rocks and sticking it into the pig. And all the layers of stuff that go above it and all the food that goes into it. And then you leave it for 14 hours and you watch it mm -hmm. for 14 hours to make sure that you don't have any cracks and no steams escaping and whatnot. And, and it was almost like a reverence that he was talking about this process um, tied to this animal, tied to a, essentially a pig, yeah. like an invasive species that people just like, you know, just... We're just going to cull a bunch and just leave them. Mm -hmm. But this was different. And that's, I think that's the beauty of the Hawaiian culture that you kind of hit on the head is that you take so much time to, to do all of these native Hawaiian, these traditional dishes. What you're talking about is an emu, 
you know, putting it in the ground and um, heating up the rocks and that's stuff. That's right. That's right. The whole process. Yeah, you're sitting there for 14 hours, but you don't see is the two days prior of collecting the different leaves that you need to get, the banana stumps that you need to find, collecting the rocks if you haven't got them at your house already. You know, so it's this big process. You know, so you're not going to take a pig that you don't respect, that you didn't take the time to clean really well, to scrub it really well, to make sure that it's all very clean because you're putting in a lot of effort to put this pig in the ground, that you're not going to just put something that you don't love into the ground after you've spent 48, 72 hours of collecting. And it's not just one family usually. Because an emu takes so much time, you've got four or five families in there. You know, you're going to put a few pigs, you're going to put some turkeys in there, you're going to put in a bunch of different stuff. You know, so all of that effort in there isn't going to get pushed to the side because you didn't give respect to the pig, you know, because, oh, you know, there was a little bit of dirt in the cavity. I would just let it go. There's a little bit of gut in there. Ah, it's all good. We're just, yeah, it's all good. No, you're going to take the time to ensure that the end product is the best product is going to be by ensuring that you put, put care into that, uh, the processing of the pork. You know, Hawaii flavors are very, very simple. You know, we got salt. And that's that's kind of the that's only thing. That's only real... salt. That's all we exactly. put on the pig. That's the, the only thing you're going to put on the pig. But the flavor really comes from the different burlap bags you're going to put in, the tea leaf, the banana stumps that you're going to put in, all that moisture that's in there, the rocks itself. You know, so you're going to get a lot of flavor from the materials that you're putting in. You know, people always ask, like, what's your favorite Hawaiian dish? You know, I really, really love poke, which is raw fish that is just cubed with a little bit of salt and some different seaweeds. But another really great dish of mine that I really like is called a lau lau. And it's produced the same way that uh, the Kalua pig is, but it's wrapped in a, in a, uh, in taro leaf that when steamed down and broken down, it's like spinach. And you put pork in there, you put a little bit of butterfish, some sweet potatoes. But what's great about it is you have this conveyor belt and you're sitting shoulder to shoulder with your brother or your auntie or your uncle or cousin or friends from down the street. And you're sitting there and you're sitting there talking stories, bullshitting with everybody, and you're just having a good time. And it's just simple of putting food in there that you love, putting a little bit of salt, wrapping it together, laughing, having a good time, and then putting it in a big steamer, putting it in the ground. And the best thing to do while you're waiting around for the end product is have a couple of beers and talk more shit. You know, mm -hmm. so, you know mm -hmm. it's, it's that love, I think, that, you know, at the end of the day, it may not be the michelin star you know fine dining but it's real food that you put a lot of love into it that you started off with respecting the animal that you harvest does the same ethos translate underwater justin because as, as i said you're the best hunters from the mountain <laughs> to the sea and it was like this thing that like oh geez you are you you technically are hunting underwater and i've heard some crazy stories of guys like popping up with their spear gun there's an axis steer right there and they pop the axis steer with their spear gun um but is the ethos translated underwater the same way as you would the land animal for sure for sure for sure and it's you know because it's just all a circle and it's you know our reefs around here um particularly don't extend like in other parts of the world where you've got two miles of reef before the drop-off um, you know, so the resources that are in the ocean for us, they don't spread too far. And so you can't over harvest out of the ocean and you've got to say show that same respect. You know, when people come and spearfish with me on the side of the island that I call home, the Hamakua coast, I live in a little town called Honoka. 
you know, I tell people, it's like, this is my refrigerator, but it's also everybody else in the community's refrigerator, you know, and if we want to ensure that there's groceries in the refrigerator tomorrow, we can't take everything out today, you know, so I limit the people that come and dive with me to five prime fish, and you can't have any more than three of any one species, you know, and that just ensures that we're not out there just going ham and just taking out everything, you know, um, because with five fish, you know, I mean, everybody believes that, you know, the fish out of the freezer doesn't taste nearly as good as the fish out of the cooler, you know, so you don't want to put too much of that right. resource in the freezer, you know, one or two to save for later is fine, but you don't want to have a freezer full of this fish when you've got the resource out there that you can go and collect from it whenever the water is calm and allows you to get in, but it's not going to be in there if you, if you take too much, mm -hmm. you know, and it's that same respect. Mm -hmm. Like in Hawaii, we eat our small fish all the way up to our larger fish. But on most of our fish that we eat off the reef, we eat whole because we enjoy it, you know, all the way down to its its lips. This fish behind me, it's called a vekeula. And uh, our goatfish out here are revered as some of the best eating fish that we have out here and the most prized. And they got big lips and they've got big cheeks and everything. And so when it's all said and done, there's just bones there. You've eaten the head, you've eaten everything because mm -hmm. you know what it took to go get that fish. It wasn't just walking down to the supermarket and getting something off the shelf. It was somebody waking up in the morning time, getting down to the shoreline, holding their breath, hunting it along the shoreline, maybe taking it away from a shark to get back to shoreline and then prepare it for you, you know, and uh, then get home, gut it, clean it and uh, enjoy it. And, uh, you know, it's even the kids, even my kids realize that you got to pull the guts out of a fish before it becomes dinner. Mm-hmm, 100%. Justin, how old are you? I'm 38. I just turned 38 this past December. I'm, I'm definitely your elder, uh, but that's okay. Um, looking back, like you're obviously raised by a dad that had this, this ethic of the land and of the ocean. Mm -hmm. Do you see the same ethic still coming up in the in the generations of hawaiians um like i, I even again coming back to this weekend they yeah. did a little film on danny and neil had a, a um neil had a, a phrase in there he says danny hasn't been hunting very long and if he messes up you know he knows the consequences you know mm -hmm. it's almost like your island life right the, the 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 there are there are things that you do and there are things that you do not do yeah uh, is the ethic still the same are people, you know, you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I, I think I do. Um, you know, for the younger generation, like for me, my dad is a, a biologist um, by trade. He's got his master's in biology, especially in wildlife management. And I don't know if that's where our love and trying to take care and being true stewards of the land and the ocean came from, you know, his learnings in the management side of in the classroom. Um, you know, and then, but he's come down from, generations of hunters and fishermen all the same way and just having respect for the land um you know here locally like i said in my little town I mean, we don't even have a stoplight um but there's a lot of kids that that hunt that spearfish that you know it's, it's awesome that it's the cool thing to do you know when i was in high school like oh you hunt you spearfish ah I'm going to go watch the the football game this weekend or i'm going to go to the basketball game or really? the volleyball game or whatever really? yeah it's because, I mean, my buddy Wayne and I, I mean, everybody liked to do it, 
but nobody did it as often as my buddy, as Wayne and I did growing up. You know, like we used to go and catch crayfish and prawns out of the rear on the weekends. Um, and people just thought that was like just strange. But that was just the way of life, hmm. you know. And now growing up, you see the next generation. You know, unfortunately, you see a lot more no trespassing signs. You see a lot more stay out of the weird, don't go catch crayfish because of the dangers that it inherently has. Um, you know, like what what I used to do at 10, 11 years old is crazy. We used to go crawl through tunnels to catch prawns and crayfish. And, you know, I, I get scared that my son's going to do the same thing. But in the same breath, I hope he does the same thing. Um, you know, but you get these kids that are growing up. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a handful of them that are amazing outdoorsmen, you know, that are out there with bow in hand, with spear guns, um, that are trying to fish. It's a bunch of kids in the community that, uh, that have gotten to, you know, as much as Instagram, you want to make fun of Instagram and stuff like that, but it's a great platform to reach out to the next generation, you know, and, um, there's a lot of kids in Honoka'a, um, that have gotten to take out hunting, that have gotten to take spear fishing, um, you know, got to travel with them and take them into different worlds of um, freshwater spearfishing and stuff like that. That is really cool that because you can have that firsthand touch on try to ensure that, you know, at least a handful of them will get the message that uh, I received when I was a little kid. And hopefully they'll pass it on to their friends that'll pass it on to their kids later or, you know, their friends' kids or whatever it'll be. Um, but, you know, in the surgence of, you know, the, the what is it the field the fork that everybody has been saying mm -hmm. it's it's mm -hmm. really resonated especially out in the country um out here in Honoka'a where there's a lot of kids that are going out and hunting and stuff like that and it seems more now than there was when I was in school and maybe it's just because I only see a fraction of the kids um but it seems like this next generation has a good grasp on on where their food comes from and respecting the animals how many people in your town uh I think like right around 3,000. We don't even have a stoplight. <laughs> that's, some, that's, that's my kind of town, man. I went from 8.5 million to, I live in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi, of 11,000 people. 3.5 oh. sounds about perfect. It's, it's beautiful. It's, we've got, I mean, some bigger towns within 20 minutes from us. Um, you know, but back in the sugarcane days, Honoka'a was kind of the bigger town in the, on the island. And so that's why we have the school here. We have an elementary school all the way up to high school here. We've got the first uh, theater on the Big Island here. You know, there's a lot of history here. But, you know, Kona and uh, Hilo on our islands, um, Kona is where Danny lives, you know, have, have uh, raised in popularity. And so the, the little small country towns have kind of stayed relatively small, which, uh, mm -hmm. which I really, really love. And that's that's why I still call it home to this day. That is, you know, that's, it's, I've never been to Hawaii. Um, I plan to. You need as soon to. as we get out, we, as soon as we get our life in order, um, there's so many good freaking stories to tell in Hawaii, like oh. just ridiculous stories. You know, um, and I mean, not to go subject and to pat my family on the back, but a great story is what my dad does out here. We do a reforestation project um, that we're trying to bring back um, a native Hawaiian forest on the, the south side. The words right out of my mouth, Justin <laughs> Lee. You know, go I, ahead. Go I, ahead. I, I try you can be the up. podcast host. Go I, ahead. <laughs> I try to pump up as much as I can with what my dad and his legacy has done. Um, you know, because it's 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 amazing what he has been able to accomplish in the last ten years with Haloa Aina. 
um, which is a reforestation project on the south side of the island. And we fund it by harvesting, you know, what the forest is able to give us and uh, and sustainably. Um, and what the forest can give us is its dead and dying sandalwood trees. And so we create an oil um, called the Royal Hawaiian Sandalwood Oil. Um, and we also create a hydrosol called Royal Hawaiian Sandalwood Hydrosol with the dead and dying sandalwood trees. You know, so the sandalwood trees that we deem dying um, have less than 50% of its canopy still intact or a large section of its bark missing, exposing its cambium later and allowing for a lot of funguses to, to move in and start to kill the tree. You know, so if we take those dying trees, harvest them, take the root ball out, the roots that are in the ground will all spark, start their own new tree, will all start to copus. And uh, the sandalwood tree, being that it's a semi-parasitic tree, which means that it can't grow by itself. It needs to have host trees or it needs to have buddy trees uh, growing with it. So it needs to have an intact ecosystem around it for it to thrive. And um, so by harvesting the dead and dying sandalwood trees, you regenerate this next growth of sandalwood trees. And you end up having to, instead of plant more sandalwood trees, you have to plant supporting trees. And uh, so we plant a plethora of 13 different native Hawaiian trees up on the property. Um, you know, since my dad and uh, three of his business partners purchased it back in 2010, you know, the other three have, have kind of moved on um, because growing a forest isn't the most financially exuberant, exciting thing in the world um, because our trees are 60 years old or older on the average that we harvest. Um, so now it's just my dad. But since 2010, we've got over a million new native Hawaiian trees. You know, um, there was an estimated between like 13 to 15,000 sandalwood trees when we started off on the property. Now we've got over 100,000. And with that 100,000, we needed support trees. And so we've got, like I said, over a million new native Hawaiian trees on just shy of 3,000 acres up there. How and, are you dealing uh, with the mammal invasives, Justin? Are you managing them from a hunting perspective too? To... And it, it's the same thing like I was talking about Mauna Kea earlier, that you can't wipe them all out. The only ones right. that we took off the property completely, as far as ungulates go, are horses and cattle. Because they're so yep. big, and their ability to rub up on trees and eat the perpetual bud after they've reached out, they've, they're horrible. On The part of the island that we live on is a tropical dryland forest. And so we took off the cattle and horses, and we still have a handful of sheep. When we first got up there, there was probably a 1,000 sheep on the 3,000 acres. And now we've got it close to about 100 um, at any given time. And they they filter to, uh, through our property onto our neighbor's property as well. Um, you know, but because where we're at um, on the Big Island, you've got three big mountains. You've got Mauna Loa, Mauna Kea, and then you've got Hualalai. And we're kind of right in the center of the three off the slopes of Mauna Loa. But what it is is we get our perpetual trade winds that come out of the northeast. And the trade winds, after it's blowing across the ocean, picks up a lot of water. It hits this mountain. They condense, make rain. And so by the time mm -hmm. it comes to our side of the island, the clouds are way high up in the sky. They're just big, fluffy clouds, not holding any water. Mm -hmm. And they're better for laying in the ground, you know, imagining that they look like, you know, a hamburger or a dragon or a train set or whatever you want to think of. You know, but they don't hold much water. And so because our side of the island is so thermal-driven, the morning time it's crystal clear because that cold air is blowing straight to the ocean. And then in the afternoon, 
because it's such a steep incline from the ocean to where we're at, and we're at about 5,000 feet of elevation, those clouds slowly start to form as the, um, the wind blows the, the water uphill. And as it condenses, it makes thick fog. And we don't have much in raindrops, but what happens is we need trees. We need watershed. We need water catchers. And so you need these big trees that catch the mm-hmm. water. Um, and that in turn waters the ground, you know, so if you've got cattle in there and if you've got horses in there, especially that are eating everything and not allowing the trees to grow big enough for them to collect the water, the erosion starts to come through, you know, already a dry land forest is even drier in the middle of a drought, you know, so you have to protect these trees from these large ungulates, but you also have your invasive species. You know, your invasive plants. You've got your kikuyu grass that was planted on the property back in the 1850s, to, you know, to help out with uh, the cattle grazing. Um, you know, you've got fireweed, you've got raspberry bushes, you've got X, Y, and Z. And so you need something to predate on that. You can't just let it be. You can't just put up a fence and say that's conservation now. You know, you have to actively manage it. And um, luckily for me, it's... Mm-hmm our management has, you know, a small number of sheep on the property that'll help us with the grasses when they get too big um, and uh, keep the fire load down. And it also let me completely sure. uh, still continue, continue to send arrows there for them. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, That's right. it's a balance, you know, and we're learning every day. Um, and uh, we'll see what the next 10 years has to show for us. Well, so you, what else do you have there? Uh, Justin, you got some sheep, you got some goats, you got some pigs. Mm-hmm. So on the Big Island for hunting, um, on our property, we have no goats, but we've got that feral sheep. And the feral sheep also has, uh, we call them hybrid sheep because we also have mouflon. Um, and so we've got wild mouflon on the property um, and they'll hybridize with the ferals and have, those are my favorite horn structure. I mean, you'll get a big one. Um, you know, I shot one earlier in the middle of last year that was 37 inches from base to tip and that was a giant for me and that that horn structure yes. is awesome but so on the big island you've got as far as mammals go for things that you can hunt you can hunt mouflon sheep feral sheep um goats and pigs um and then you have vancouver bulls which are these big wild cattle that uh, you can go and shoot as well um mm-hmm. on three of the other islands on molokai lanai and maui you have access deer. Um, and on Kauai, you have black-tailed deer as far as things you can hunt. Um, and so Hawaii, you know, maybe my hunting friends won't like me saying this. It's a hunter's paradise. It really, really yeah, is. Yeah, for sure. You know, because you can wake up 365 and say, you know what? This afternoon, I'm going to go for a walk. I'm going to look for some pigs. Um, you know, and that happens in the Lee household for me, at least all the time. It's, you know, get done with work at 4 o'clock, pick up L at school, and Let's go. Uh, let's go walk around the forest let's for go a little explore. bit. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, Justin Lee, uh, nobody expected the Biggles boy to talk about <laughs> to talk like this. To talk uh, with words like parasitic, cambium, ecosystem, coppicing. You have certainly been trained by a biologist, and I'm very proud that uh, you have those kinds of words and terminology in your vocabulary. Um, I gotta thank my dad and my mom for that. Growing up, hundred you know, percent. Like I don't know if uh, when you come out to Hawaii, you'll find out that we have uh, a really thick, like local dialect called Pigeon out here. And uh, 
Um, I've got a lot of friends that come to the mainland. I went to school at the University of Washington in Seattle. And um, my best friend, Wayne, you know, he is a country boy. You know, the only difference between true local Hawaii people and rednecks are just our location. Um, you know, we speak, we speak with uh, thick accents. And I would get on the conversation with my buddy back home, you know, and my roommate would be like, I kind of understood the things you were saying, but I have no idea what you were saying. You know, it's because you get this thick pigeon and you start to, I mean, for instance, it's like, and this is going to sound so forced and I apologize for this, but it's like, oh, bro, we go down the beach tomorrow. We go Kane Kapila, we go throw some uh, Kalbi on the Hibachi, uh, maybe throw some poles. Yeah, we just have one good one. Bring the kids, we go. And so basically, it's just like, hey, yeah, let's go exactly. down to the beach, let's grill, let's throw some food on the grill, let's drink some fishing poles and bring the family down and let's go have a good day. And, um, you know, growing up, my mom and dad, would yell at me if we talk like that in the house (laughs) um and you know my dad like i said he went to colorado state university and got his master's degree and my mom got her nursing degree at northern colorado and we got moved from hawaii for five years when we were little from five to ten and uh you know if he spoke pigeon in the classroom in fort collins you had i mean my english still sucks like i can't write to save anybody's life um but uh you know no one would understand you and so you had to quickly drop the pigeon and uh be able to speak clearly enough for everybody to understand 100 percent, 100 percent. well uh justin i am i am thankful for you and, and thankful for the conversation but i ne- definitely am coming to hawaii and uh come see you and your phenomenal project and uh there's so many stories to be told and we need i guess we just start there right and go from there exactly you just got to come out and you know that's that's the cool thing about you know people from hawaii um especially in the circles that i run in and danny is included in that um you know is that it's more than just instagram it's more than just a story it's it's our life you know and uh it's not just a show that we put on you know it's it's what we do you know and and that connection to the land um, out here and, and passing on the next generation to, uh, to make sure that they know where their food comes from is just a way of life out here. And, uh, it's truly, truly a wonderful way of life. And, uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. No, you're absolutely right. I think that any Hawaiian listening to this would echo the same thing that it's a way of life. It's not just like a blip that is this fantasy thing, but mm-hmm. it truly, truly is your your ethic and your ethos and how you guys live day in and day out. Um, I look forward to shaking your hand, my man, one day, <laughs> maybe hopefully in Hawaii, all right? Let's do it, man. Let's do it. You got to get out here. Bring lots I'll of arrows. It. I'll do it. I, I like a boomstick of oh. arrows, by the way. Well, then bring a handful I'll bring of lots of bullets. <laughs> there you go. See you, mate. See ya. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.